Welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Vaktan Chanchaleishvili. I'm one of the cardiac surgery fellows at Mayo Clinic, and today we are interviewing Dr. Lyle Joyce, a cardiac surgeon at Mayo Clinic who is a world-renowned expert on artificial hearts. Dr. Joyce, thank you for agreeing to participate in this podcast. My pleasure. Dr. Joyce, what can you tell us about early developments of the artificial heart? Well, of course, the early attempts at coming up with a uh, replacement for the heart or a blood pump dealt uh, with the attempt to come up with a pump for a heart-lung machine. For example, the probably the most popular story that we all know of is Charles Lindbergh, who had a relative that needed heart surgery, realized that if he didn't have a pump that would support the body while the heart was operated on, that his relative wouldn't survive. And he sought out Alexis Carell, who was a, a famous vascular transplant surgeon in those days, and asked him if he would attempt to build such a pump, and they started working on that in about 1935. Unfortunately, his relative died before anything uh, became of that, but as a result of that, Charles Lindbergh actually went into Corral's lab and for several years worked uh, with the various uh, prototypes of, of trying to build some sort of a heart pump. Now, as I recall, both of them went off to the World War II, and uh, all of that research sort of went uh, to the side. Probably the person that uh, deserves the credit for having first implanted experimentally a total artificial heart would be a Russian surgeon by the name of Dimikov, who also is well known for something else. He was a he coined the the term transplantology, and his probably his most noteworthy achievement was the the famous two-headed dog transplants that uh, he was doing. But in 1937, he actually had developed a a diaphragmatic uh, pulsatile pump that he implanted in a dog, and I think he kept that dog alive for about two and a half hours. So as best we know, that's probably the first pump that we could call a artificial heart that was uh, implanted experimentally. The course then probably shifts towards uh, the Cleveland Clinic, where Dr. Kolf had joined them in 1957. And uh, he and Dr. Akutsu were implanting or were developing uh, artificial hearts. He'd already been the inventor of the dialysis machine during the Second World War, and now he was moving on to other artificial organs, and the artificial heart was one of those organs that he wanted to develop. And Akutsu and Kolf actually built a pump that they implanted in a dog and kept that dog alive for 90 minutes. So you know, those are, are some of the very earliest implants. Okay, uh, now what do you think about subsequent developments that uh, brought the artificial hearts closer to the first human implantation? And do you think that you know, Cold War and space race had any influence on that to accelerate the process? I think there's no question but what the 50s and 60s period of time was a time when there were a lot of races going on. And certainly the Cold War set up that race between Russia and and the U.S. of trying to mass the largest artillery and 
and uh, there were at the same time there was that, that space race to see who could get the first astronaut in space, the first one to circle the uh, Earth, the first one to land on the moon. And it is interesting how these races sort of were going on simultaneously, and that did spill over into medicine as well. I was growing up uh, just a young kid in those days, and and it was uh, it was very obvious that everything was a race. I mean, it was who could be the first to do just about everything in those days. And building a pump, an artificial heart, certainly fell right in line with that. The focus probably needs to be shifted to Houston, Texas, and that would be because of Dr. DeBakey. Dr. DeBakey was already in the news all the time with the, the first aneurysm repair and uh, the first uh, carotid endarterectomies, all the different vascular procedures, and at the same time we had uh, the, the race to develop a, a heart-lung machine so that we could do open-heart surgery, be it uh, John Kevin's pump or the uh, Lillehei pump. Dr. DeBakey wasn't just a, a good surgeon. Probably equally important was the fact that he was pretty powerful on Capitol Hill. And he testified before Congress on, on several occasions trying to push them to develop a, a program to make an artificial heart. And in 1964, he was successful in getting Congress to set up an artificial heart program through the NIH such that funding would actually now be directed to research specifically in that area. He went back to Houston fully determined to be the first to uh, develop a total artificial heart, and uh, he attracted an Argentinian surgeon by the name of Leota, who had been in France during that time starting to work on some total artificial hearts. And Dr. Leota joined uh, Dr. DeBakey in his lab after that uh, development of the, of the artificial heart program. And they really got off to a good start. In fact, just two years later, by 1966, they used one of the parts of a, a total artificial heart that they were developing as a ventricular assist device. And there was a lady that had a double valve replacement, aortic and mitral valve replacement that wouldn't come off the heart-lung machine. And they actually used that pump to support her, and her ventricle did recover. She was explanted, and uh, she did well for many years. I got my first exposure to the group down there in the summer of 1968 when I was a, a college student, and uh, I worked in Dr. DeBakey's lab when he and Dr. Leota were implanting the Leota total artificial heart in calves. My job was to wash the instruments and clean the floors and then we tried to keep these calves alive through the night. And unfortunately, we never had a success. Every calf died overnight. And I went back to college in the fall of 1968 and uh, then was shocked when in April of 1969, all of a sudden we hear that Dr. Cooley has implanted the Leota total artificial heart in a man who couldn't be uh, weaned from the cardiopulmonary bypass machine after cardiac surgery because I knew that there really hadn't been any long-term animal survivors in that period of time. Surprisingly enough, the patient woke up, was extubated, was making urine, mentated well, and the pump was working beautifully, despite the fact that it had never been successfully used in an animal. 
he was on the artificial heart for 64 hours and then uh, was transplanted and unfortunately died of pneumonia uh, uh, 32 hours later, I think it was. But that set up a tremendous feud between Dr. Cooley and Dr. DeBakey. Dr. Cooley had already moved from Methodist Hospital over to St. Luke's Hospital, so there was a friendly competition going on with all sorts of surgical procedures in the years preceding this. But this just set up uh, such a vast barrier between the two of them that uh, they parted ways and literally never spoke with each other for many years. In fact, uh, Dr. DeBakey was so disgruntled over it that he literally shut his research program down, and uh, very little was done there for the next uh, 25 years. What do you think was the motivating factor for Dr. Cooley to implant total artificial heart? Well, I think it gets back to the old race, you know, the space age race. I mean, it was the uh, the desire to be the first. And uh, as you recall, the first transplant was also, heart transplant was also a, a worldwide race. And everyone was shocked that it would be Christian Bernard that would manage to do the first heart transplant when uh, Norm Shumway was doing all the research in, in uh, Palo Alto at, at Stanford, and everyone had expected it to be one of the U.S. centers. Um, Dr. Cooley was determined uh, to be the first to do many procedures. In fact, I can remember as a then that summer of 1968 when transplantation was becoming popular and and we would get wind that Dr. Cooley might be doing a transplant in the middle of the night and we would rush up into the dome and and hide under the desk in the dome because we knew that we would get pushed out by security when anything happened we never ever all the the trans, potential transplants failed we never ever got a chance to see him do one of his first heart transplants. But it was just that mood that was in the air that you've got to be first. And uh, I think it was uh, it was uh, probably something that was irresistible for uh, Dr. Cooley. And was that the only time when Leota heart was implanted in a human being? It was, right. Dr. Leota went on back to Argentina, and uh, then Dr. Cooley actually acquired another surgeon, Dr. Kutsu, who had come to Dr. Kalt's lab and had put that first total artificial heart in the dog. Dr. Kutsu moved down to join Dr. Cooley, and Dr. Kalt, at about the same time, actually in 1967, moved from the Cleveland Clinic to the University of Utah to set up a total artificial heart lab. And Cooley's research work shifted towards the Akutsu heart. Dr. Kalt's work shifted to developing other prototypes of pulsatile pumps, and he... Uh, came up with a, a design that he thought was feasible, but when he went to patent that design, he recognized that uh, a, a guy by the name of Paul Winchell, who was a ventriloquist, everybody knew him as a ventriloquist, had actually drawn up the designs and had patented a total artificial heart, which the legal powers that be determined Dr. Kolf's ideas fell on underneath that patent. Dr. Kolf was clever enough to get Paul Winchell to actually donate 
his patent to the University of Utah, so then Dr. Kolf could move ahead and uh, and develop uh, various iterations of a pulsatile pump there. I actually left Houston after uh, medical school and came up to the University of Minnesota and did my general surgery residency there and really had sort of lost track of the progress during those years. I was busy as a resident, but also I was convinced that if Dr. DeBakey had given up on it, it probably wasn't going to happen. And it just so happened for various reasons that I uh, elected to go to the University of Utah to do my cardiac fellowship. And I came on to the university service and the, the new staff physician was, was Dr. Bill DeVries. One Monday afternoon, he says, okay, now tomorrow morning, we're gonna go out to the old St. Mark's Hospital and implant a Jarvik 7 total artificial heart. So went out there and lo and behold, walked into the uh, uh, animal quarters and here there are 12 cages lined up with sheep and calves with various stages of Jarvik 7 total artificial hearts. I mean, you know, these, these animals were out months and they were being exercised on treadmills and it was obvious that uh, Dr. Kolf had gone a long ways and actually was ready. We were convinced that he was ready to have the Jarvik 7 implanted in it, into a human. And during my residency there, every week we'd go out and we'd implant another Jarvik 7 total artificial heart to get up to speed to do the first human implant. The FDA did approve the IDE to uh, implant that pump. So when I finished my residency in 19, uh, summer of 1982, since I had been such a vital part of implanting uh, so many calves, Dr. DeVries was in need of a partner at the university, so I stayed on staff and continued to work towards that first human implant. How was Dr. Jarvik involved in these developments? Dr. Jarvik was a student at the University of Utah and was working in Dr. Kolf's lab. Dr. Kolf had the habit of as graduate students came through and made modifications to the previous pump that they would get to name the pump after them. So there were, you know, there were a whole probably 30 different pumps that have been developed over the years, but Dr. Jarvik was fortunate enough to be the one to make the last modification before going to the human. So it was called the Jarvik 7 Total Artificial Heart. In September of 1982, we were visited by a dentist from Seattle who had end-stage congestive heart failure, and he was being treated by one of the cardiologists at the University of Utah who was very interested in the total artificial heart, and he insisted that the dentist come down and check this out. So he actually came down to the artificial heart lab and watched DeVries and me implant one of the pumps in a calf, watched the calf wake up and come out of the anesthesia, and... Uh, then elected at that time to come back if he could make it during his final days. Part of the protocol required that the patient would not be a transplant candidate. In fact, it had to be turned down by three different transplant centers. So this pump was clearly going to be a destination pump. Anybody that had the pump implanted knew that they would die on that pump at some point. Dr. Clark had decided that he wanted to be a part of that experiment and went back to Seattle and continued his medical treatment until the Thanksgiving weekend of 1982. And he came in with incessant ventricular tachycardia. 
so we got him in, got him settled down for a day or two, and uh, and then it became evident that he just was not going to survive very long if we didn't go ahead. And we actually had him set up to have to do surgery uh, on Monday morning, but at about 11 o'clock Sunday night, went into VTAC and we couldn't get him out of it. So we rushed him to the operating room and uh, we emergently implanted the Jarvik 7 into him. From a hemodynamic standpoint, really did quite well. And uh, we learned a lot from the uh, human experiment, if you will. We know now that we did a lot of things wrong. We probably kept him on antibiotics far too long, and what really ended up causing his final demise was uh, bacterial overgrowth, what we now call pseudomembranous enterocolitis, that uh, caused uh, a, a fatal septic picture. After that, there was so much public interest that everybody across the, the world started pushing the, the artificial pump design. So the enthusiasm was there, but there was uh, still question about whether we were ready for the flood of total artificial heart implants. And the FDA in 1988 made a paradigm shift and uh, decided that there would be no more pumps that would be implanted as permanent pumps. They would all be used as bridge to transplant. I think they kind of hoped that that would shift the tide a little bit, thinking that no one would implant a total artificial heart in a critically ill patient and then turn around and take a precious organ and waste, take the risk of wasting that organ in someone that might not survive. Fortunately, it was just the opposite that happened. We found out that patients actually got healthier on the total artificial heart. They became better transplant candidates, and uh, that has, over the years, pushed us now all the way to the other direction of knowing that artificial devices are good as bridge to transplants, but they're also good destination devices as well. Mm-hmm. How come that since those years, the artificial heart design hasn't really changed that much, and the current pumps that we're using are very similar to Jarvik 7 artificial hearts? It is. The, the pump that we have now is what we call the Jarvik 770 total artificial heart. Jarvik 7 is a 100cc pump, and it was a big pump, and it fit in Barney Clark quite nicely because he had a huge chest. But we knew very well that it would not fit in a woman, for example, or, or a, a child. The group in Utah recognized that and uh, built a 70cc pump, a pump that was 30% smaller, identical to the Jarvik 7. I moved on to uh, Minnesota in 1983 and developed a, set up an artificial heart program there. And the company sent out these Jarvik 770s to all the sites that were implanting them. So we got the pump, we sterilized it, had it on the shelf ready to go. And then the FDA decided that since no animal studies had been done with that pump, that they weren't going to allow the pump to be implanted into a human until further animal studies had been done. Now, Kolf Medical was what the company was called at that time was uh, hurting for funds and there wasn't any way they were going to be able to do enough animal studies to get uh, approval for clinical implantation of the Jarvik 770. So they called up and said, okay, the FDA is telling us we have to send them all back. Well, I asked them, I said, well, what if we need the pump? And they said, well, you can use it as compassionate use. If you call us, we can send a pump out, you can sterilize it, and then get approval from the FDA on a case-by-case basis if need be. And I said, well, that'll never work because sterilizing the pump was a 30-day process. It had to be gas sterilized. And that essentially meant that 
any patient that was so critically ill that needed an artificial heart was not going to survive long enough to get the pump. And it had just turned out that the company had hired a new CEO from Minnesota, someone from Medtronics. He had moved to Salt Lake City, but I think it was his son that was a senior in high school, and the rest of his family stayed behind and continued to live in, in Minneapolis until he had finished high school. So I made a deal with him. I said, I'll tell you what, I will abide by the rules, but I've got this pump in the sterile pack. I'll give it back to you, but I want you to take it to your house in Minneapolis and keep it there so that I can get it if if need be. He agreed to do that. And then in December of 1985, we had a a 40-year-old lady, very small lady, Mary Lund, who came in with myocarditis and was in florid heart failure. And it was obvious she was not going to make it through the night. So I called the company and said, well, this is what I was afraid of. I knew that we would have a patient that Charvik 7 wouldn't fit in. Would you agree with me trying to get approval? I said, well... Give it a try. They're they're not going to go for it, but give it a try. So it was about 11 o'clock at night that I called the FDA, got the deputy online, and told him exactly what I'd done. I said, we've complied by your ruling. I don't have the pump. It's in the hands of uh, Colf Medical, but it's stored here in Minneapolis, and I can get the pump here and uh, use it if need be. The line went totally dead. In fact, I thought that the guy had hung up on me. And then after the longest pause, this voice comes back on the line and says, Well, Doc, I guess you know what you need to do. Good luck. So we implanted it, and it fit well. It worked well. And uh, within three months, we had FDA approval for using the Jarvik 770. So that has been the only pump that has been used since then. Dr. Joyce, very briefly, what can you tell us about continuous flow on artificial hearts? Well, we first learned about the potential success of continuous flow pumps actually through acute heart failure treatment. And the person that probably taught us more than anything is a a surgeon by the name of Rich Wampler who developed uh, the hemopump. This was a little pump that he modeled after his experience working overseas uh, with one of the government programs, putting in Archimedes screw pump uh, water pumps to help pump water in the Mideast. And when he came back, he thought, well, there's no reason that we can't use this Archimedes screw principle to pump blood just as well as you can pump water. So he had this pump put together, and the impeller was going to spin at 25,000 RPM. Of course, anybody in their right mind would realize that this would just break up red cells to the point you wouldn't have anything but Kool-Aid when it was all done. But lo and behold, there was very little hemolysis, and uh, it was tested in humans. It worked well, and we didn't have problems with renal failure, and it really was a very successful experiment. So that, I think, is what really turned the tide for most of us. And then there were several people that got involved. Dr. DeBakey, actually, with Dr. George Noon, linked up with NASA. And they were the first to come up with a Micromed pump, or the Bakey Vad. And that pump was small enough that you could hold it in your hand. And we realized that now, rather than two big air hoses coming out through the skin, at least we had just a small electrical cord. And, of course, had hopes that very soon that would be totally implantable as well. So, Dr. George, do you think this is going to be the future? I think most likely we will continue on with the continuous flow because of the advantages that I have mentioned. The companies that are are designing the pumps are 
aware of the shear stresses and uh, the newer designed pumps, I think, will likely have more, greater clearances, probably less shear stress, and, and hopefully will have far fewer problems with the uh, GI bleeding. Dr. Joyce, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.